We're, we're continuing our tough question series, and tonight we're talking about the Trinity, which should be easy, right? We all, we all get that. Just right off the top, you see at the top of your page of notes, the word Trinity is not actually found in the Scriptures. So why do we believe in this doctrine? Why is it important that we believe in it? Uh, it's actually very controversial. You know, the, the, this is one of the things that Muslims uh, will, will hold against Christianity. They'll say, well, Christians believe in three gods, not one. Uh, and, and there are some Christians who don't really know how to respond to that. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, it, they just don't really know what to do with it. So they, they'd rather not think about it or talk about it because it's just one of those things they figure, well, I just, I don't, that's beyond me. Um, I, I gave you the quote from J.I. Packer's famous theologian and author. It's often assumed the Trinity, just because it's mysterious, is a piece of theological lumber we can get on very happily without. And I'm always surprised, but I shouldn't be, when I talk to people who don't understand that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one. Um, so why do we believe that, and, uh, and then why is it important? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So the, the first question, why do we believe that God is three in one? Well, because the Bible says so. And again, the Bible never uses the, word, the term Trinity. We invented that term to describe something that the Bible tells us about. Uh, so here's an example. Matthew 3, 16 through 17. This is the story of Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here you see the Son, Jesus Christ, on earth being baptized, and the Father speaking from heaven. Now, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is the Son of God. It calls him that many times in, in several different contexts, but it doesn't mean that, that Jesus is God's physical son. This is what people need to understand. I heard somebody say it this way. It's not as though Mr. and Mrs. God got together and had a bouncing baby boy, right? Although that's not far from what Mormons teach, uh, but that's another subject. Um, Jesus is not the physical son of God. It, it's not that God is older than Jesus. They are one. Uh, John 1 makes it clear that both of them existed, that, that God existed, the word existed before anything else. Um, so the, the term son of God is just sort of a, a human way for us to understand the fact that they're separate but co-equal. So going back to that, that story of the baptism, uh, Jesus is baptized, you hear the voice of the Father from on high, and then you see the Holy Spirit landing on Jesus. And so that's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of whom are called God in various ways in the Scriptures, and yet they're all together in one place. Um, so here's a couple of more scriptures that just show the divinity of Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's about how Jesus was fully God, but he chose to humble himself or empty himself in the term, in the term that uh, Paul uses. Or John 14, 9, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And I've often said that when people say things like that, they're either crazy or they're criminal or they really are uh, Christ the Lord. So you have to make the choice. Jesus made such claims about himself that the one thing he couldn't be was just a good teacher. 
So Jesus is fully divine. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit form. God the Father is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and they're one. There's, they're not multiple gods. There's one God, and yet there are three different persons within the Godhead. And we see this in a lot of other places in Scripture. Genesis 1, 26, uh, they're talk, uh, God is talking about creating human beings, and he says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. That's just a little clue back there in the first chapter of the Bible. Now, you might say, well, Jeff, but that doesn't make sense. How can three be one? How can they be three distinct and yet one God? And I agree with you. It doesn't make sense in human terms. I can remember when my daughter was very little. Uh, many of y'all know she just graduated college. I'm very proud of her, and she's highly intelligent. She was a really smart little five-year-old. We knew we were in big trouble even back then. And, and, and she said... Hey, Daddy, I think I get this whole Trinity thing. She said, it's like, you're my dad, but you're my mom's husband, and you're my pastor too. So you're one person, but you're three different things. And I said, wow, that's really great. Extra candy for you. But, <laughs> but while that works in some sense, it's not, it's not a perfect analogy of the Trinity. Because I, as uh, Carrie's husband, can't have a conversation with Kaylee's dad unless I want to visit some nice men in lab coats, right? I, I, I just, you know, I, as, I as, as her pastor don't get to preach to her dad and her mom's husband. That's just not the way it works. We're, I'm one person. There's only one of me. I have three different roles, but I'm still only one person. Jesus and God the Father and, and God the Holy Spirit are one God, and yet there is a relationship amongst the three of them. Again, we can't explain that, but I've got... I've got good news for you. You don't have to be able to understand something in order to believe it, in order for it to be true. Every day I go out and I get in my car and I push the button and it turns on and I have no idea how that happens. I know that it's called an internal combustion engine, but I have no idea how combustion propels my car. And if you're a gearhead or you're an engineer, don't even try to explain it to me. It's not even going to work. I, I won't be able to comprehend it. I just My brain doesn't work that way. And yet, I know it's true. And you may be able to comprehend that, but there are other things that you trust in that you can't understand. And this is one of those things. You don't have to be able to comprehend something in order to know that it is true. So that is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, why is it so important? You might say, okay, that's fine. I just don't want to think about it. Well, but it is important that we know this. It's important that we think about it, ponder it, and understand God in this way for three reasons that I can think of. Number one, because it tells us who God is. If you had a very close friend who said to you, I know we've known each other a long, long time, but there's something about you that about me that you don't know that I'd like to share with you, and this is something really important about myself, would you say, no, that's okay, I know enough? Well, then you wouldn't be a very good friend. God has revealed himself this way in his word, and so it's important for us to know that about him and for us to understand him in that way. Otherwise, he wouldn't have shared it with us in his word. It tells us who God is. It, it even sheds light on some of the things we already know about God. And here's an example. So we know that God's love is one of his attributes, one of the things we're most thankful for, that God is a God of love. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. We, we sing that when we're little children. That's one of the first things we learn. First uh, John 4, 8 says God isn't just somebody who loves. God is love. He is the very standard of love. Apart from God, there is no love. And yet, think about this for a moment. Now, this is, when someone explained this to me, it blew my mind. It took me a while to understand it. But we say God is love. 
But we also know that God existed for all eternity before there was anything. Before there was humans, before there was animals, before even there were angels. God existed all by Himself in the universe forever. And yet He was perfectly content. Now how could God be love, a God of love, and be content living for all eternity with no relationship with anyone whatsoever? He couldn't. We know that it's true because there is love within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all eternity, there was that relationship. And Jesus talks about it in John. This is the passage we looked at this past Sunday. John 17, 20-24, Jesus praying and saying, My prayer is not for them alone, His disciples. I pray also for all those who will believe in Me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You. Father, I want those You have given Me to be with Me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So Jesus is talking about this love that exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that existed before anything else was created. And that was all the love that God needed, was His relationship within the Godhead. He made us not because He was lonely. He made us because it glorified Him to do so. And he, he made us because it was an act of generosity because that's who God is. And he's inviting us to join in that beautiful relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We also know from Romans 8 that the Spirit of God within us cries out, Abba, Father. Have you ever thought about that passage in Romans 8? You know, we know that Jesus taught his disciples to call God that word, Abba. It's, it's an Aramaic word, not even Hebrew. Uh, Aramaic was the language that Jesus grew up uh, speaking I say not even Hebrew. It's the language of the Jews in New Testament times. It's not ancient Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in. So in other words, it was the language Jesus grew up speaking. When he was a little boy, perhaps the first word he ever spoke was Abba. You know how little, boy, little, little babies say Daddy before they say Mama because the world just didn't fare, right? So, so Jesus taught his disciples, call God that. And that was revolutionary. This was in a society where, where the Jews had such a reverence for the name of God that they wouldn't even say the word Yahweh. They would spell it in their text with no vowels, so it was unpronounceable. And here comes Jesus and says, you can talk directly to him and you can call him Daddy. You can call him Abba. And so what Romans 8 is saying is, we know that we're God's children because there's that voice inside of us that cries out to him that voice that cries out, Abba, Father, that voice that just feels a pull towards Him, that, that yearning for that relationship that we've always longed for. In other words, when the Holy Spirit gets us out of us, we feel the love that the Spirit has for the Father. It comes out through us. So there is love the Spirit has for the Father. There's love the Father has for the Son. There's love the Son has for the Spirit. And it just goes round and round. that love within the Godhead. That tells us who God is. He is truly a God of love. Secondly, it tells us we can never fully comprehend God. And this is an important point. You know, one of the things about God is you couldn't make this God up. Any other God in, in any other religion, when you study it, you think, okay, I can see where they worked that out. I can see where they thought, okay, this is probably what God is like. But when you come to the God of the Bible, you think you can't make up a God like that. I mean, let me just explain what I mean. See, fictional characters are always easy to explain. Any fictional character you want to name, you can reel off their characteristics 
in a few sentences. So just for an easy example, I love the Indiana Jones movies. So what can I tell you about Indiana Jones if you've never seen those movies? I, he's an archaeologist. He looks good in a fedora. He's, he uses a whip, and he, he's skeptical of supernatural things. Okay, there you go. And you learn that in the first 30 minutes of the first movie. And so for the rest of all the rest of the Indiana Jones movies, you know how he's going to respond based on, oh yeah, he hates snakes too. That's the other thing. You know, you know how he's going to respond to different situations based on that knowledge. Now, contrast that with my wife. I've been married now, this is my 28th year of marriage, and so I know this woman pretty well. I could tell you all kinds of things about her, and yet there's plenty of things she does and says that surprise me. Plenty of things she doesn't says that, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. I'm still learning, right? And I hope you are too if you're married. The, the, thing I'm, the, the point I'm making is someone who's fictional is easy to explain and predictable, whereas someone who is real doesn't fit into any easy categories. You can, you can list off some attributes. You can say, oh, she's about that tall, and she likes these Mexican food, and she's, you know, she laughs at these kinds of jokes. But that doesn't do it. There's so much more there. In the same way, the fact that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is just so hard for us to wrap our minds around is in its own way a proof that He is real because we couldn't make that up. And then third, a third reason why it's important to believe this is it makes sense of what happened at the cross. It helps us make sense of what happened at the cross. So some years ago, uh, back when people used to email stories around before, before they started posting them on Facebook, I remember getting a story in the email um, that has stuck with me ever since. And it was, it, it was a story of a, it was, supposed to, it was supposed to illustrate the sacrifice God the Father made at the cross. And so as best I can recall it, here's how it went. It said, you turn on the news one day and you hear about a mysterious disease that has broken out somewhere uh, in Africa or Asia or some foreign country and, and they can't figure out what's causing it and they're trying to stop it and you just kind of turn off the news and don't even think about it. Well, by the end of the week it is spread to every country in the world and Rulers of nations are terrified, and, and, and doctors and scientists are scrambling to find a cure. And then the next paragraph of the story says they finally find a cure, but unfortunately, the cure is in antibodies that are found only in the blood of your child. So you have to make a decision. They, if, in order to make enough antidote to stop this epidemic, they have to drain the blood of your child, which will kill your child, but it will save millions of lives. What do you do? And I read that, and, and of course, I was a young parent at the time, and I thought, oh my gosh, what a terrible story. And it stuck with me all this time. And, and the point was, that's the decision God the Father had to make at the cross. But there's some problems with that story. First of all, in that story, the people who were getting sick were innocent victims, right? It was just some random event that happens. Whereas in, in real life, the reason Jesus had to go to the cross was not because of some random thing that happened to us. He was rescuing us from our own sinful choices. The consequences of our decision to go in the opposite direction from God's will, He was stepping in to take those consequences upon Himself. Romans 3, 23-26, not one of the more com uh, uh, comforting or easy-to-understand passages, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a 
propitiation. There's that word. We'll come back to that. By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when I say this isn't very comforting, it reminds us of the fact that at the cross, it wasn't just about God's love for us, but it was also about God's wrath against sin. God's wrath against sin. God needed to destroy evil just as much as he needed to rescue us. And both things were accomplished at the cross. So that word propitiation, which is just not a common word, I bet you haven't used it all day, right? Propitiation literally means satisfying a debt. So uh, there's a song we sang when I was uh, a young Christian. He paid a debt. He did not owe, I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Some of you know that song. And that's exactly right. There was a debt that we owed that we could not pay. Christ owed nothing, but he paid the debt for us. Um, So the first understanding of the cross that we get, and that's why it's so important that we have this idea of the Trinity, is that Jesus was paying our debt for us. He was stepping in to to cover the consequences. God's wrath was being poured out on the evil that exists in the world so that evil itself might have an expiration date, so that evil would would be ultimately dealt with. And when it says that he he was both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus, that's such a beautiful phrase because what it says is he accomplished both. He justified us and he brought justice to the world. So the second problem with that story uh, of the disease and the little boy um, is in that story, the father, we assume, has to make the choice to give up his child, but the father himself remains unharmed. Whereas when you understand the Trinity, you understand that it wasn't just Jesus, the son, who suffered at the cross because God is fully God, because God is one God. You know, I, I think one of the biggest misunderstandings people have is Well, God the Father, mean old God the Father, pushed his innocent son into the cross and he walked away scot-free. But that's not true because Jesus is God and God is Jesus. And so whatever Jesus suffered, God suffered. Does that make sense? I mean, it makes sense in the sense that we know it's true. It doesn't make sense in the sense that we can understand it. But God was not... The only one who walked away scot-free from the cross was the sinner, and that's us. God the Father felt the lash. God the Father felt the nails. God the Father. God the Father was punished for us. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the third thing that story gets wrong. Is In that story, it's about physical death. And yes, Jesus did physically die, but his physical death was not the worst he experienced that day. You know, 10 plus years ago when the movie the, the, uh, the Passion of the Christ came out. I remember that movie coming out and, and all of us going to see it and it was very powerful. Uh, very powerful depiction of the crucifixion. But all it could show was the physical agony of the cross. Because what really happened to Jesus you can't show on any screen. And the truth be told, there have been many people who've died in as much physical agony as Jesus experienced that day. So it wasn't his physical agony that was our atonement. 
When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was he saying? He was saying at that point there was a split. There was, there was wrath being poured out on the Son by the Father. There was uh, that sense that he was lost for our sake. You might even say he was experiencing hell so we wouldn't have to. Um, Jesus experienced that separation from the Father that you and I deserve to, to experience that we've chosen for ourselves by sinning, he experienced that so we could come back to the Father, so we could come home. Jesus gave up what is best, the greatest treasure of all, so we could enter into that relationship. And that's really the gospel. See, the most frustrating thing, I think, for anybody who's a serious student of Christianity is when you realize that most Christians can't articulate that. It's the best news of all, and yet you ask them, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, I go to church, and I try my best to follow the commands. And that's not Christianity. That's religion. Should we go to church? Well, it keeps me paid, uh, but yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. Yes, you should go to church. Should you do your best to obey the commandments? Absolutely. God put them in there because he knows what's true and what's right, and it's for our good. But Christianity, the core of Christianity is not anything that we do. It's what he did. It's his death on our behalf. The good news is that we, we serve a God who, within whom there is ultimate joy, within whom there is ultimate righteousness, with whom, within whom there is ultimate love, and he has made it possible for us to enter into that. So there's no hierarchy there's no uh, special club in the, in that, within that relationship where some people get better access. Are there greater rewards in heaven for some than others? There's some indication of that, but I don't get any indication that that involves God loves this person more than that one because God's grace has made us all one in Christ. Ground is level at the foot of that cross. Now, I have not answered every question about the Trinity. I am absolutely certain of that. But do you see now why it's so important that we understand that, that God is not like other gods, that God is not simply a deity in the sky, but he is alive and active in us in the form of the Holy Spirit. He came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son. He was the creator, the judge, and yet he's one. And what you believe about that, what you affirm about that, determines how you will live. So let's praise him for it and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're uh, so thankful that you died for us. Lord, oh Holy Spirit, I, I thank you for illuminating your word for us. Thank you for the reminder that there's still a lot of things we can't fully understand about you. But you've told us enough so that we can know how wonderful you are. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that we would love you as you truly are that we would grow in knowledge of you, but also in obedience to you. Lord, I pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, who gives us access to the throne. Amen.